You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast, where we talk all things Apple, Macintosh, iPhone, iPad, and more. This is the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks. Joining me is our editor-in-chief, Neil Hughes. Hey, Victor. How's it going? Great. You know, before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about advertisers. We don't often read long ad reads on this show. We love having good advertisers that support our show, but in order to doing that, we need your help. So if you can, please go to podsurvey.com slash insider and take a quick anonymous survey that will help get us to know you a little bit better, and that way we can show advertisers just how great our listeners are. If you've taken the show's survey before, this one is a different survey, so I'd love for you to take it all over again. When you complete the survey, if you're in the U.S., I believe, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So that's podsurvey.com slash insider. Thank you so much for your help. Neil, there's a whole lot going on today, isn't there? There is. It's been a busy couple weeks. Loads and loads. I'm so glad to have you back, by the way. Just want to say that so everyone knows. So in the past, we've talked about rumors about Apple buying up facial recognition companies. But it actually happened, didn't it? Yeah, they've made a number of key acquisitions over the years. Uh, uh, Mateo was one of them. Um, uh, Prime Sense. Um, and then just this last week, uh, we have another one uh, that just happened, and it's all coming as these uh, rumors of a uh, uh, 3D sensing capabilities in the iPhone 8 come out. So a company, an Israeli company called RealFace bought for a basically not even pocket change by Apple standards, only $2 million. Uh, that may be a lot of money to me or you, but for Apple, that's basically nothing. They, uh, they, they make that in no time. So um, the company's been around since 2014. Um, they do uh, facial recognition technology. And you got to think that this is some sort of a patent IP play for Apple. Uh, the expectation is that they're going to have the new iPhone 8 coming out later this year with um, infrared sensors uh, alongside the FaceTime camera on the front of the device uh, that will allow for a number of applications. But um, we can get in that do, into that in a bit. But yeah, so this is another one of these IP plays, I think, for Apple um, as they work toward this eventual goal of, of uh, 3D facial recognition. Yeah, and I want to say that it's, it's interesting because there's been a lot of criticism about Apple's ability to acquire companies. And it, it doesn't seem to be a real problem for them. You know, we, we had yeah, that... The- uh, you know the note that I'm thinking of that was criticizing Apple for not doing big, uh, big yeah. purchases and things like that. Right. So there was that note where they they criticizing Apple for not making giant acquisitions and things like that. And and they don't seem to really have this problem. They don't seem to be slowed down by it at all. Yeah, they make uh, you know close to two dozen acquisitions a year. Not all of them get known because they're not really high profile purchases. Um, it's just they. You know, other than buying Beats, um, and if you think back when they bought PA Semi, which paved the way for them to make their own chips and stuff, uh, they're very strategic about these types of acquisitions, and uh, they always usually are very clear indicators of where the company is going. Uh, You think back to, uh, what was the fingerprint company um, that they bought? You had met with the guy from the oh, company. Oh, yeah. So that was a company that came out of Harris, and I'm trying to remember what the name of... Yeah, they're a Florida-based company, but they yes. were responsible for the Touch ID technology that eventually showed up in the iPhone 5S. Um, so, again, when Apple makes these kind of acquisitions, sometimes it takes a little longer. The PrimeSense buy was, I think, back in 2013, so it's been a little while. Um, but, again, it's kind of very clearly working toward this 
uh, eventual goal that they have. Um, and so all of that ties into uh, everybody's favorite analyst, Ming-Chi Kuo, who came out with a note this week talking about the 3D facial recognition technology that's going to be in the FaceTime camera, supposedly, on this year's high-end flagship iPhone D, iPhone 8. Um, and basically, uh, what he sees is this is going to be a 3D camera system that's going to be used for a variety of applications. So he seems to think that it's going to be open to developers in addition to um, available to Apple. Um, now, the obvious application for this is letting you unlock your phone with just your face. So some people in the comments and some people on Twitter have talked to me about this and they say, oh, Touch ID works fine. Why do I need a facial login? Well, have you ever had your Touch ID rejected because your fingers were sweaty or wet or you're wearing gloves or something like that? Um, that's an example of where perhaps uh, a facial recognition in tandem with or in replace of Touch ID might work. So I could imagine this in a few ways. Uh, if you wanted a really secure locked down phone, you could require both uh, two-factor authentication biometric to log into your to your phone. It has to recognize both your face and your fingerprint. Or you could have it set up so that it was a fail-safe one or the other. It'll look for your face, it'll look for your fingerprint, and whichever one it gets first it authorizes, authenticates, and logs you in. Basically, we don't know, but the the beauty of it is that if you wanted to do just the face, you could totally remove the Touch ID. In theory, we don't know, but uh, yeah, in in theory, if if that were prefer preferable to somebody, then yeah. So the the thing is, the technology uh, behind Touch ID is probably going to go away with the iPhone eight because they're going to have this edge to edge screen with like a, a an area below the screen that isn't going to have a home button, but it's going to be like its own screen down there for, for system menus and stuff like that. The way that touch ID currently works is it uses a capacitive ring that it's a metal ring that surrounds the home button. And what it does is it essentially sends a, a, a small electrical pulse over the, the, the surface of your fingertip, which allows the sensor in the home button to, to uh, see, to to scan your fingerprint and authorize that it's you. That technology is not going to work on the next phone. So if Apple continues to have a fingerprint scanner, which I think is highly likely, it's going to have to use different technology. Um, so there will be something, Apple will probably call it Touch ID, but it's not going to be the same technology as the current Touch ID. Um, and that will probably be in tandem with uh, some sort of 3D finger or face sensing uh, technology. But Ming-Chi Kuo believes this will also be available to developers. So you could do things like, for example, um, scan your face and have it turn into an avatar in a game. Or you think about the, tiny, the type of things that Snapchat's doing where you have filters and it does these well, fun things with your face. Years and years, and years ago that the Levi's store in the mall, they had a body scanner and you could scan your body and it would go ahead and figure out what your measurements were for the proper pair of jeans. Right. And you, you'd, you'd scan yourself and you'd say, yes, I want to place an order. And, you know, sometime later, you'd have genes that fit arrive. So you could totally do things like that with this. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that Ming-Chi Kuo talks about in this note. He says that he thinks that in future iPhones beyond this year, the same uh, uh, advanced uh, technology will come to the rear camera. But I guess Apple sees more applications for it in the short term with facial recognition. But theoretically, it could be used on the rear camera as well. Uh, for things like you're talking about. So potentially a third-party developer could make an application where it could scan your body and then show how things might look on you or even scan your home and allow you to you know, put furniture, change your wallpaper. There are all kinds of really interesting applications for this that, that make a lot of sense. And we've talked about this over the years for Apple's VR and AR acquisitions where we said they're not going to make a headset. And now you're starting to see where this is coming to fruition. 
uh, AR, uh, which is something that Tim Cook has said repeatedly that he's interested in, it is one of these types of things where it can be all kinds of, of applications. It doesn't need to be a headset. It doesn't need to be, it could just be something that exists on your phone that you look at. It doesn't need to be 3D. It doesn't need to be all those things. Yeah. Now, when they talk about replacing the home button, Apple did file a patent, and we've seen this, the, the, the filing here, about acoustic imaging system architecture. And what they're doing is they're using the, the screen as a series of uh, acoustic transducers laid across the display, and it generates acoustic waves that are, are used to sense the reflections back off of your, your biometric thumbprint. And, you know, when you disrupt those waves, it says, okay, and compares that to a database and says, okay, that's your thumb. It's a, it's a kind of cool technology, but that would enable that screen-to-screen kind of uh, elimination of the Touch ID button. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Apple implements this technology and, and more so because Touch ID is so, I think, well-received and reliable. Uh, it will be interesting to see if what they replace it with is better uh, if it's uh, comparable, it may be potentially worse because uh, we all know what the limitations of Touch ID are right now. You know, if you're sweaty at the gym, don't try to unlock your phone because it's not going to work. Uh, you're going to have to enter your passcode or if it's raining out or whatever. Um, I think everybody's pretty familiar with those limitations right now. So as they switch to new technology, um, there are going to be obviously changes that come with that. So I'm, I'm curious to see how the whatever method they do implement because uh, I just don't see them getting rid of the fingerprints. I think it's too logical and pe- it's too ingrained at this point. Uh, it's kind of like the home button. They can't necessarily, quote unquote, get rid of the home button. They can just kind of evolve it and turn it into something different. Um, and so the expectation is it'll be more of a virtual home button going forward. Um, and so I think that along those same lines, the fingerprint sensing is going to change, but I don't see it going anywhere. Well, the the utility of fingerprint sensing doesn't change, but they could certainly drop the button and say that they're making sweeping changes. Yeah. Right. They, just because they've done it for this many years doesn't mean they're married to it. Although it's a it's a good interface has been a good interface so far. They're they're not. They, they've been evolutionary so far. They can be revolutionary and take something away in a big change. Yeah, and I think that it, it's going to be. You know, there won't be a physical home button, but it's still going to be some form of a home button. You know, this idea of. I mean, think about it right now with the iPhone 7. The home button doesn't click. It's already virtual. It's halfway virtual. There's a physical thing there, but it doesn't move. It just feels like it clicks. Apple has a ton of data centers around. They've got one in Maiden, North Carolina. They've got one in Reno, Nevada. And they just filed a permit to expand the one in Nevada. Um, what's what's interesting about this permit? Did you did you see the article we wrote about this? No, in fact, you wrote it. So of course you did. <laughs> yeah. Look we, at that. We, uh, <clears throat> we had this article uh, first this week. And um, basically, this is a $51 million expansion of the Reno iCloud data center that Apple has. Um, uh, It is something that was submitted to the local government. Um, It was a permit that was submitted and then subsequently pulled, but uh, they said they were going to resubmit it. It's called Project Isabel, uh, and they're looking for a pretty big expansion um, of the facility out there in Reno. Uh, So Apple, as of... uh, a couple of years ago, had 412,000 square feet. They've since expanded that. Now they're looking to expand it even further, another 375,000 square feet of uh, office space out there. So uh, as Apple's services business continues to grow, um, especially with comments made recently during their quarterly earnings calls and such, um, saying that uh, Apple plans to double the size of its, or quadruple, I believe, the size of its services business in the coming years, um, I think that um, 
this is going to play a really important role because Apple services are all cloud-based and and uh, server-based uh, things that they provide over the internet. So uh, this is going to be an important part of Apple's uh, business in the next few years. It's interesting to me that they pulled it and um, that they're going to resubmit it. But they've got a number of buildings out there. And one of the interesting things about their data centers is that they always use a lot of the land to put up solar farms. So they're they're looking at putting up a 200 megawatt solar farm to power the Reno facility by uh, by by 2019. Yeah, a- Apple has been doing a pretty good job of uh, tapping into whatever green energy is available in the locations where they're doing business. So uh, even the uh, new campus that's going to be opening soon, now known as Apple Park, um, has its own solar generator on the roof that is going to provide most of the power to it. Uh, there are other areas where, uh, you know, water power, wind power, um, Apple has kind of tapped into whatever natural resources are available in the area uh, as, as a green and environmentally friendly way of doing business. And it's... Uh this, this facility supports Siri, FaceTime, iMessage, and uh, potentially iCloud. That, that's one of the things that, that we think a lot about is, is you know, how is Apple doing in terms of cloud services? And how is Apple doing in terms of pushing people to use their cloud? It's one of those things that has the, the, project, the process of, of improving has been gradual. Um, certainly, there are areas where Apple lags behind, but it for those of us who have been using Apple products and Apple's cloud-based services for a long time, uh, they are definitely better now than they ever have been. That's not exactly a high compliment, but um, it's one of those things where uh, a lot of these services, you don't really notice them until they don't work. Um, and I've been noticing them less lately, so I, I suppose that's a compliment. It's definitely interesting to me, and it's interesting to me, especially in light of this other story we had about Apple eliminating the 32-gig tier with capacity starting at 64 gig. Um, my, you know, one, one person said to me, a friend said to me, that what he thought Apple ought to be doing, because, of course, everyone has advice for what Apple ought to be doing, is to push people to use the cloud more, make the cloud advantageous to use, make it, uh, make it affordable to use, and keep the storage low, and then keep the cost of the devices lower. I mean, when you look at all the components on an iPhone, um, I have to think that the margins get higher as you go up with higher capacities just because it's all the same components, the same chip, the same everything else. Um, And then the capacity, you know, you double it for another $100. That's been their business model for a while. Uh, It doesn't actually cost them another $100 to put that chip in there. So I think that the margins get higher as you go higher with those iPhone models. So using that capacity, uh, for lack of better term, carrot and stick approach, Um, I think is an easy way for Apple to justify pricing. So this is a rumor that makes a lot of sense to me because the rumor is that they'll start the iPhone 8, the high-end premium iPhone, at 64 gigabytes of capacity. Uh, So basically, they would have 64 and then a 256 model. Um, That would be an easy way for Apple to justify the rumored price of this device, which is to be over $1,000. They can say, well, we're charging you over $1,000 for it, but you start with 64 gigabytes of capacity. Because if they tried to charge a thousand bucks for a 32 gig iPhone, um, I think they'd catch a lot of flack. I think they're going to catch some flack for starting a thousand bucks anyway. Well, and and this, this, this friend's proposition was instead of it charging a thousand bucks, it should continue to be the same price points, open up the, uh, the cloud better and push people to use the cloud services. You don't need the storage. If you push people to use the cloud is, is his proposition. I don't necessarily believe that. Um, I think that, 
apps continue to get bigger and you can't really have all of your apps in the cloud. Certainly you can re-download them, but if you want to access them, if you want to load a movie onto your, your iPhone you know, or your iPad you, or whatever. Did you ever see a device called Nextbit Robin? No. Nextbit Robin is, was, they, they got purchased recently, but they were an Android maker and they had an interesting build of Android where it allowed them to do this cool thing where when you had apps that you hadn't used in a while, it would archive them and they were still on your phone in that if you tapped on them, it looked like they were on your phone, but it behaved kind of the way that uh, I, that Photos Cloud Library does, where when you when you tap on a photo, it re-quickly downloads the photo. So you could have all the apps that you're used to having available on your phone, but you had to uh, to tap on them when you needed them kind of thing. And yeah, it's an interesting concept. In a while. I, I think that... So, uh, uh, Apple might be reluctant to do something like that just because it would potentially lead to a significant amount of bandwidth usage. Um, you know, downloading a five to ten megabyte photo when you tap on it is very different from downloading a fifty to one hundred megabyte app uh, when you tap on it. Yes, yes, it is. So that would be one of those things where maybe you could only have it work over Wi-Fi, but then you're gonna then at what point does it become a frustrating user experience where you want to use an app, you're out and about, you have to authorize and say, oh yes, re-download this. You thought it was on your phone. You know, th- this yeah. capacity argument well, of putting everything in the cloud is an interesting idea, but we're not in that world right now. The apps that you use regularly, that you use most commonly, totally makes sense to keep them on your phone. The apps that you don't, right. having that pruned for you may not be a bad idea. Not, not necessarily, yeah. I think that, uh, but there would be bandwidth concerns there. Yeah. So, you're a headphone guy. I am. I know you are. You 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 like your mask like very, like very much. You uh, you enjoyed some of the other headphones that you've had around there. So you you like the the uh, the Odyssey that you liked very much. Tell mm-hmm. me about your experience with AirPods and PowerBeats three. So I'll give you a little background on the AirPods. I think they look kind of goofy. Um, I was convinced they would fall out of my ears because every oh, headphone I've ever you had. You look kind of goofy. Come on. Well, that is that is true. The, the headphones don't make the man. But um, yeah, I was resistant to uh, AirPods. I didn't really want them. I wasn't interested in buying them. Um, our publisher had a, a extra pair of them and really wanted me to write about them. So he insisted that I take them because he's a big fan of them. So um, I did, and I have to say, um, I'm pretty impressed. They are pretty nice. I have not had them fall out of my ears. I can shake my head around. I can run on the treadmill. I can run outside. I can uh, do whatever. Um, they're they're pretty good. Um, I did a comparison uh, last week. Uh, it was a pretty popular article. A lot of folks weighing in in the comments and on Twitter um, about comparing the AirPods to Apple's PowerBeats 3. Um, and specifically comparing these headphones for folks that want workout headphones. And uh, I think that the, the, the general conclusion that I came to in this article is I think that uh, if you want to buy one pair of headphones, one general all-purpose pair of headphones for working out, for uh, wearing around, for using with your computer, with your iPhone, with your iPad, with your Apple TV, with your Mac, whatever, uh, the AirPods are going to be your best option. Uh, they're very versatile headphones. They're far from perfect, but they're pretty great. Um, if you are a serious, uh, serious gym rat, if you like to run outside, if you uh, do high intensity workouts, 
Um, while the AirPods have never fallen out of my ear, there's still a chance that they could. Whereas with the Powerbeats 3, they won't fall out of your ear. They clip around. It's impossible. They will never, ever fall out of your ear. So um, that extra peace of mind plus much longer battery life um, and other advantages uh, with the Powerbeats 3, I would say if you want a workout-specific headphone and not an all-purpose headphone, you should go with the Powerbeats 3. Having said that, both of these are really great headphones, and Apple's W1 chip is pretty much a game changer in terms of wireless and Bluetooth technology. So no matter what pair of W1 headphones you pick, you're going to be happy. Uh, I would say for most people, go with the AirPods. They're $40 cheaper, and they're more versatile and more portable. Uh, but if you want some workout headphones, you can't really go wrong with the Powerbeats 3. So which ones are you going to use long term? That's a good question. Um, I went to the gym yesterday um, and I brought my AirPods with me uh, just because it was smaller and lighter. I, I find that the thing that I like the most about the AirPods is the lack of a cable in between them. Um, you know, they're obviously completely wireless. Uh, when I use the Powerbeats, uh, the, the cord around the back, you can tighten it, but um, it is constantly snagging on my shirt, on my clothes. If I'm running outside, you know, it's cold out right now. I'm wearing a hoodie or whatever. It snags on that. Um, it's not as freeing as using the AirPods. Uh, but I did, I, I still do. I'm, I'm paranoid about it. I was running on the treadmill yesterday and I kept, uh, looking at my, I don't, there was a reflection of me on the glass in front of me on the window. And I kept like checking and looking and seeing, did it look like my headphone was moving? I was adjusting it. So there's an anxiety that comes. They've never fallen out, but I'm uncomfortable with it. And even when I run outside, I, I wear a beanie and kind of like pull it over my ears because, again, it's cold out, so I can do that. But I probably won't be able to do that in the summer, you know. But I feel more comfortable when I have it slightly covered. It feels like it's going to stay in there better. So I, 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 it's hard for me to say at this point. You have anxiety, Neil. I do. I do. I have, I have, I have a lot of anxiety, Victor. <laughs> wow, that's terrible. <laughs> I, I think that... Uh, um, I could see myself uh, switching back to the power beats as it gets warmer, maybe, and I'm running outside and, uh, you know, just more comfortable knowing it's going to stay on my ear. Uh, but for all day to day stuff, like uh, I, li I live in New York and want to get on the train, for example, uh, having that small little thing in your pocket, you pull it out, pop them in your ears. It's really, really nice. It works great. And they're just they're so nice and small in your pocket. Um, real easy to pop in, pop out um, and use them. Um, they're great all purpose headphones. Do you find that you use Siri more when you have them? No, I don't use it at all. Okay. I use Siri for basically, oh, and now it's listening to me. Hi. Uh, I use it for two things. I use it to control HomeKit devices, and I use it to create reminders. Other than that, I don't really use it. I guess I would have to say that my experiences are pretty similar, although I know people that use it entirely for dictation, that, that whenever they're doing texts or anything like emails, they, they either use the dictation keyboard or they're doing Siri. I'm always in front of a computer usually anyhow, so it's just easier for me to type because Siri will get it right 85% of that time, and then that 15% is just really frustrating. Yeah. Well, speaking about Siri, we had a report that said that Apple's unlikely to develop an Echo-like standalone speaker. This didn't really surprise me very much. Did it surprise you? Well, <clears throat> it, it may not surprise me, but it's kind of disappointing. So let's talk through it. The, the report is is coming from Times' Tim Bajaran, who says that Apple has no apparent interest in, in creating a device kind of like the Amazon Echo or Google Home speakers. That, um, you know, we, we have seen reports that suggest that Siri will see another revamp soon, but, and, and they, they did buy a machine learning startup called Turi in August, but they're, they're not interested in developing a standalone speaker because they have an Apple TV, they have an iPhone, they have an iPad, they have 
a laptop that all can use Siri in different forms and different ways, that they don't feel like they need to do it, is what this report is suggesting. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that for the most part. Uh, I think the biggest flaw right now uh, is that Siri on different platforms is only capable of certain things, and it really needs to be uh, if it's going to truly be omnipresent, it needs to be more functional. So a great example of that is we got Siri on the Mac last year. Great. Uh, it even has a dedicated Siri button if you get the, the new MacBook Pro with Touch Bar. Okay, cool. Uh, can't control HomeKit devices. What? <laughs> well, and it's the same thing from the button on the Apple TV is it can only talk to you about things that are on TV. Yeah, like why can't it, why can't it do that? Why can't it give me the, that kind of information that I can get on other platforms? Why is Siri online only? So if I go outside to run my watch and don't bring my phone, then I can't use it to control things like it should at the very least be able to control device settings and things locally. You know, like the problem with it is the voice processing is done in the cloud, uh, which leads to it being slower than alternative things uh, like uh, Amazon Echo, Google Assistant, whatever they're calling it now. So. That that is one of the big uh, holdups of uh, of Siri. However, I think that going forward, as Siri becomes more fully functional, especially on the Mac, uh, folks that want a standalone Siri speaker could potentially do it. Because you and I have talked about doing this. Um, there is no uh, I won't utter the words in order, but uh, Siri hey uh, command on on uh, the Mac right now, which is ridiculous to me. But there is no speaking command for for it on the Mac right now. So. You and I have talked about the possibility of, you know, getting an old Mac or using your MacBook Pro or a Mac Mini or something and creating your own Echo, like, you know, headless unit or something like that. You can't do that currently, but you have to think in the not too distant future as the features come more and more to the Mac that you would be able to just use your Mac for it, right? Well, so here's here's the thing, right, is that Amazon is licensing out to third parties the ability to make that standalone speaker. I currently have the Amazon branded one, and I also have a Hometics branded one, HMDX Voice, mm-hmm. and they they make they give away the code on GitHub to put the the Alexa voice on uh, Raspberry Pis, and so there's a Kickstarter that I showed you that is doing a in car uh, navigation, uh, lane detection, and and following too closely kind of thing that also is going to have Alexa built into it, and it's based around Raspberry Pi. And uh, we may write about that. I, I have the beta hardware running, basically, at this point, um, using their, their software. So Amazon's going to spread everywhere with this stuff. And Apple is limited to only working on the devices that can run it and only having uh, hands-free voice activation for those devices if you have the newest phones that will listen to you for those wake words. I still, right? I, I still think that that the it's am- it's. Uh, I, I feel like Apple is limiting themselves in a big way from exposing people to this. Yeah, I, I can agree with you there. I, I think that uh, the counter argument is that uh, th- these Echo, you know, standalone speakers are a very niche uh, market, right? Well, I, I can tell you that I think you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. They've they've sold a huge number of these things, uh, and I'll tell you how many as I'm looking for my numbers here because I got it. So 82% of Amazon customers have one of these things. So far, they've sold about 8.8 and a half million of these things. So they're out there. 
they they had a good holiday season with them and people are buying them and you're using them to control first of all they're doing the things that you do reminders and timers mm-hmm. they're using them a lot to listen to music and so people who got out of the habit of listening to music because they weren't using their phones to listen to music and they weren't using an iPad iPod anymore to listen to music are now listening to music again using these speakers. The other thing that people are doing with them is is in lesser numbers, about the same, you know, 20 or 30 percent, is controlling ho- in-home devices. I mean, I, I think that there's definitely a market for it, um, but I think that people are more familiar with Siri and will continue to be more familiar with Siri than they will with Amazon's offering, just because it is on all their devices. It's on their phone, it's on your watch, it's on your TV, it's on all your stuff. Um, I think that... Uh, Apple has a certain advantage there, certainly, um, with their approach. Uh, I think that familiarity with Siri uh, will continue to stay above what Amazon is offering, especially because Amazon is never going to get into the phone business. Um, not, not not again, not after they failed the first time. So, <laughs> Not for a very long time. So I, well, that's how, that's how Alexa got born, was it was going to be the assistant on the Fire Phone. And when they canned the Fire Phone, they had this assistant hanging around. Right. So what were they going to do? But I, I think that their push to be ubiquitous is really working for them. And that people are far more aware of what it is and and receptive to it than Siri, just based on how it works. You know, you, you yourself said you don't really use Siri. And yeah, I, not impressed I, I, I think, the, uh, the result. yeah, I mean, I'd like Siri for certain complex functions, but for basic stuff, it's just easier for me to open my phone. But again, like I was saying before, when I want to create a reminder, that's an example of something where um, it, it, is a complex task. I have to open my phone. I have to open the reminders app. I have to, you know, create a new entry, choose a date, choose a time, blah, blah, blah. That just takes forever. But if I do it with voice, I can do it in 10 seconds. So there are certain super complex tasks where it makes sense. And there are certain things like texting somebody where, uh, the, the, the likelihood of errors, and then you send it to somebody and they read it and then you got to explain and it's annoying and it's like, eh. Yeah. Tell me about this event in March. I, there's there's supposed to be at least report claims that there's going to be an event in March, and we think this is the event where we get new iPads. Is that right? That's the expectation that we're going to see um, new iPads and uh, three of them, in fact, uh, a new 9.7 inch entry level model that will kind of be the successor of the iPad Air 2, um, a new 12.9 inch model Pro, uh, the jumbo sized uh, tablet. And then uh, an entirely new size of 10.5 inches, which will be the smaller Pro, uh, slightly larger than the old model. It'll essentially be two iPad mini screens stacked side by side. And the reason for that is because the iPad mini actually has a higher pixel density than the uh, the current 9.7 inch iPad Pro. So this will give Apple the ability to have a slightly higher quality screen than they, than they currently offer. There'll be a baby, the good one, and the big one. Yes. Now, the, where that leaves the iPad Mini uh, remains to be seen. There have been a few rumors of uh, iPad Mini Pro, but I just don't buy it. Um, it seems almost like, from what uh, we're seeing from the supply chain and from reputable sources, that uh, the iPad Mini won't be updated in March and may actually be dead. Okay. And uh, is there also a report about a colored phone? Can we get a new color? Yeah. So uh, one of the more surprising things that's uh, being rumored now is that uh, Apple might uh, try to boost uh, kind of uh, mid-cycle sales of the iPhone 7 by offering a new product red version of it, which would be the first time uh, Apple has done that with uh, flagship 
iPhones. So you might see iPhone 7 and 7 Plus with a uh, new red shade. Um, and then the other one, uh, exciting for me, although I think a year too late, I don't know that I would buy it at this point. But uh, as everybody knows, I'm a big proponent of the iPhone SE. Uh, and oh, while it's yes, not are. supposed to get a, uh, a refresh this year, uh, the rumor is that it might get a capacity update to 128 gigabytes. So currently, the iPhone SE maxes out at 64 gigs. The rumor is that Apple might double that. In which case, you need to take yours to China and get a 256 put in. <laughs> yeah, I know. I still have the 64 gig. I finally, as of last week, had to cave in and uh, enable iCloud photo library uh, uh backup without storing the photos on the phone. Um, I was insistent in going through and I deleted all the videos from my phone and backed them up to Dropbox and, you know, did all this stuff to clear up space, deleted a bunch of apps, whatever. But finally, I just, I could not free up any more space and I, I kept uh, bumping up against that wall. So I enabled it and it freed up like 12 gigs of space on my phone and now I'm good. Yeah. Do we think that this event could be held in the new Apple Spaceship campus? It's a possibility. Um, it would have to not be a March event, though, probably more likely April, but that is entirely possible. Uh, people are saying a March event, but these dates can always change. Right. No one's received an invitation yet, for example. Right. But it would be kind of cool if they held that in, in the Steve Jobs Theater in the Apple Park. That would be very cool. A absolutely, yeah. They, they announced this week the official name of Campus 2 is Apple Park, uh, the quote-unquote spaceship campus that uh, Steve Jobs himself uh, unveiled. Uh, back in 2011, just a few months before he passed away. Um, and in honor of him, uh, the uh, thousand seat theater that they're going to have there, where presumably new products will be unveiled in the coming years, uh, perhaps even the new lineup of iPads in a couple months, or more likely the uh, iPhone 8 uh, and accompanying phones this fall, uh, will be named, christened the Steve Jobs Theater uh, in honor of the late great co founder of the company. It's a thousand-seat auditorium situated on top a hill overlooking meadows and the main building. Mm -hmm. In honor, of looks him. pretty cool. I still think they misnamed the building. What do you think they should have named it? The Orchard. Ah. Uh. <laughs> well, first of all, historically, it was an orchard, right? That's true. And then, and that that was part of Steve's pitch to the uh, the the Cupertino City Council was that this was an orchard, and that when he was growing up as a kid, and then it got plowed and. Uh, you know, plowed and, and built up over and then buildings all over the place and that they were going to restore it. Well, it should have been the orchard and, and they would have been technically the apple orchard. It would have been a fantastic. How they missed that. Too bad. <sighs> Darn it. So one of the things that I'm a big fan of, and everyone knows I'm a big fan of is Apple CarPlay. And I, I know that people think CarPlay is kind of boring, that CarPlay isn't in enough cars or things like that, but CarPlay is such a convenient thing to have in the car while you, while driving. It, it works great for navigation. It works great for having the messages and notifications that come with the phone, and it's great for managing music. It's really the best way of, of handling an interface in the car, especially since car manufacturers have, as they always have, screwed it up really badly. Um, what's the news this time is that we have the the second coming of uh, wireless CarPlay. So wireless CarPlay debuted in a beta version of iOS 8 in 2015. And then this year in January, when I was at CES, we saw the wireless Alpine ILX 107 receiver that has it. And uh, now BMW, it looks like, via Carmen, is incorporating this into the BMW 5 Series sedans. So this is the first example of wireless CarPlay in a new car. 
Yeah, this is slowly catching on um, CarPlay and and even more slowly wireless CarPlay. But uh, it's nice to see more options on the market. Although I don't think most people can afford this one. Well, the I, I don't know. Going out and getting a brand new BMW 5 Series sedan is probably a push for some of us. But uh, there are people that'll do it. I I knew a fellow uh, in 2010 or 2012 when BMW had their first big iPod integration. And he went out and he got the one that had the good iPod integration when that debuted. So it can happen. Uh, for, for the rest of us, the Alpine ILX 107 is available. And if you're not a fan of wireless CarPlay, if you're just interested in CarPlay but prefer the cable, and there, there are some valid reasons for that. One is charging, right? If you're going to plug in your phone to charge anyway while you're driving, you may as well plug it into a wired CarPlay system. And it works or is meant to work identically, Right. Uh, the only benefit is that you, you know, with a wireless one, is you don't have to take your phone out of your pocket when you get in the car. Mm-hmm. It'll just work. The disadvantage is there are some people who are, are concerned about wireless signals in the car bouncing around and, and irradiating you for long periods of time. So there again, wired is a solution that's available to you. And the question becomes of how reliable it is, because even the best wireless interfaces still sometimes fail with their auto connection capabilities. Uh, I actually had an issue with my AirPods last week. Um, I was trying to go for a run with just my watch, put on my AirPods, and my watch kept saying it didn't recognize them. I had to go back into my house, put my phone in airplane mode, and then go back outside, and then it connected. So um, you do run into issues occasionally. Yes. Yes, you do. Wired but, solves uh, that problem. There's a reason that Steve Jobs had his entire house hardwired and wasn't relying on wireless. Well, at that time, he was also doing that for security reasons. Right. But, yeah, you know, there's it's, – it's, and then a valid question is, do people who do that, do they have wireless for their iPhones or are they using the uh, camera connection kit and an <laughs> Ethernet adapter? And, you know, how far down the rabbit hole do we go down? Does that work with an button? iPhone? I know it works with an iPad, but does it work with an iPhone? That's a very good question. Send me a camera connection kit and I will tell you. <laughs> I will test that. Uh, I have the uh, USB be... 3 one here for my iPad Pro. Okay, I have the uh, the Ethernet dongle. The USB 3 kit is supposed to work just as well backwards compatible with the, the 2 stuff. So let's try that out. Um, it's one of those things where I, I definitely would like to know that, actually. <laughs> if you really want to use an Ethernet cable with your iPhone, you're dedicated. Well, let's let's find out, right? <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what happens. Uh, it, it used to be that the experience between the camera connection kit on an iPhone was very different to that on the iPad. But my understanding was that over time they were trying to unify that and make it a little more similar. Yeah, they, they uh, added support with it at some point last year uh, for the camera kit, but I don't know that all the USB accessories work the same. Um, it would be interesting to see if you could connect, for example, like a wired keyboard to your phone if it would work. Yeah, send, send that over. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. Apple Watch and Research Kit Epilepsy Study concluded. This was one that I liked, and I liked it because uh, longtime listeners will know that I have an interest in the health advancements because these are things that have real impact when they're done well. So there was a 10-month survey. Participants tracked their seizures with an app custom built for the study. And when participants felt like an aura for the seizure building, they opened the app and then told the Apple Watch to record their heart rate sensor and accelerometer data from the Apple Watch plus gyroscope data from the iPhone for 10 minutes. And during the 10 minutes, the app prompted users to respond for reflex and awareness testing. Following the conclusion of the seizure, participants were surveyed about seizure type, aura, loss of awareness, and possible triggers. So they recorded 1,500 seizures. And I want to say that that's a huge amount of data for a study of this nature, that in the past, before there was the care kit and research kit, that a study like this would have been, you know, 
50 people. Impossible. It, it, maybe, maybe they might have had 200 people. Yeah. But it would not have been big yeah, it's, at it's all. Yeah, it's impossible, basically. Think about it. You have to basically keep somebody, you know, with the equipment that was available to have them hooked up to it and what have you. You have to keep them locked up in a hospital somewhere uh, with machinery available in the event that they maybe have a seizure, you know. Uh, whereas in, in a case like this, um, you're already wearing the watch. Uh, you're there. You know, you can be out and about. You can be anywhere. And when it happens, unfortunately, um, you can interact with the watch and and uh, let it log this information and, and send it off. Um, and it's the kind of thing that was not possible before. Uh, so all the research data that can come out now um, and that can advance medicine uh, is would have been impossible without this type of technology. Yeah, and they learned a lot about the potential causes for seizures that they didn't really know before. Uh, defying conventional wisdom, seizure triggers didn't depend on the type of seizure. They they better understand the seizures. They're going to better understand epilepsy as a result. And what's going to be really cool is the eventual goal is to be able to use technology to predict an oncoming seizure. So if you and, can predict a seizure, you can you can potentially save lives. Right, and and you can think about all kinds of other applications for this too. You know, heart disease, um, other things that that they could track, measure, potentially prevent. Um, there are all kinds of exciting uh, places for this to go. Uh, when you have this kind of multi-purpose device that you wear on you and that can measure your health. It's it's a huge thing. I, I always like this kind of news. This is the best kind of Apple news. So I'm going to go full circle. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the show where we were talking about Touch ID and iPhone fingerprint. And this is a story that I bring up just because it's it's one that I keep paying attention to. So there was a federal court ruling that says that police can't force a building-wide iPhone fingerprint unlock. What happened was that there was a, uh, a search warrant that the government submitted to a judge, and the warrant basically asked for everyone to have their fingerprints taken and tried on all of the iPhone devices around. They were going to have to require everyone to unlock phones. And the judge said, wait a minute. The warrant's missing specifics about people living on the property, other than what the name of one person thought to live there. It was vague about what kind of electronics might be found, saying that it was only likely that Apple brand devices were around, that they were seeking the authority to seize any individual at the premises and force the application of fingerprints. And it, it, he said, this is not specific enough. You can't do this. It's, it's too broad. And he turned it down. So this is the first time that we've seen a Touch ID case like this turned down. And it's uh, it's something that I like to see more of, actually, because I think that uh, we have to uh, balance how unlocking of devices is done, right? This is something that came up last year with the FBI mm -hmm. and whether a device that was zoned by uh, San Bernardino County, you know, it's 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 uh, you know it's, it's important that complying with law enforcement is complied within limits, that that there's law that governs this stuff. Certainly, I am not a lawyer. However, uh, the purpose of a warrant, um, at least in the origins of it, <laughs> is to be uh, limited in scope and very specific for its purpose um, because you are uh, encroaching on people's personal liberties and personal rights for the good of, of uh, society, uh, for uh, law and order. Um, certainly, over the years, uh, those terms have ebbed and flowed. Uh, there have been times uh, where in the, the interests of the country – um, uh, judges and, and uh, uh, elected officials have argued uh, that perhaps uh, more uh, 
that there should be a larger scope for these types of things. Uh, certainly, warrantless wiretapping after 9-11 is an example of that sort of thing. Um, a lot of those were curbed in the years after it. The pendulum swings back and forth. So, as you say, this is a very interesting subject uh, and one that uh, uh, we'll be following very closely as we go forward just because uh, on its face, uh, the the decision uh, it seems right to me that you can't say that everybody has to unlock their phone in hopes of, you know, catching the needle in the haystack, so to speak. Um, doesn't work like that. That's not really the purpose of a warrant. Not that the purpose is never, this is actually what bears out in real life. Right, you know? yeah. People issue a warrant and then police grab everything anyway. Right. And, and this was something that we saw a couple of weeks ago with the change in airline travel policies where, where Americans were getting stopped at the border and being told to surrender their devices and having their devices checked for social media accounts. Um, yep, part of the new U.S. Customs issue. policy. Well, there was an issue because uh, one of them happened to be a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and said, that's company property and I can't surrender it. And the, another one was a Jet Propulsion Labs employee mm-hmm. who said, that's that's government property. I can't Top surrender Top secret it. information on the phone. Yeah. And uh, so this is, this is an interesting, interesting thing that we'll keep watching. Absolutely. All right. And that is all the time we have today. This is the Apple Insider Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Apple Insider, where I'm writing every day. And you can find me on Twitter. And my handle is at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. I'm at VMarks. I write for Apple Insider. I'm around if you want to find me. And I want to thank you, readers, for sending in your emails. And I want to thank people for leaving reviews on iTunes. We do appreciate it, uh, especially the kind ones. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with more. 